Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion and our third episode in our Upper Extremity Prosthetic Series. On this episode, we are joined by Greg Johnson. In 2017, Greg was involved in an accident and sustained amputations of his long ring and small fingers of his right hand. After his injury, his goal was to restore his independence, and he found that through the use of a variety of prosthetics. Greg shares with us his experience of learning to use a variety of prostheses that allow him to return to work and the other activities that are meaningful to him. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Greg. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to ASHG's podcast. And we have Greg with us this evening. And Greg is a patient of one of our ASHT Education Division members, and he was happy to join us this evening to tell us a little bit about himself and what he's experienced over the past few years. Greg, tell us just about what you're doing currently and yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good evening. Thank you for that intro. I'm Greg. I work for the United States Navy. I've worked for them for a long time. I did 26 years in the active duty military in the explosive ordnance disposal field, diving, parachuting, bomb disposal from 1985 till I retired in 2010. And then I started working as a government civilian doing the same thing, just as a civil servant. Same organization, same desk, same email, same phone number, same job. I just didn't have a rank on my uniform when I went overseas. My main job is to battlefield collection of weapon systems and ordnance in order to bring them back for countermeasure development. So I normally travel the world, gather items of interest and bring them back or facilitate bringing them back to the United States for for exploitation purposes. I'm still in the EOD realm and I still do that even after I was wounded. To that, I was over in Southeast Asia working with some foreign and U.S. soft elements, and it was Friday the 13th in 2017, January, Friday the 13th at 1616, so 416 p.m. For those of you who aren't good on military time, when my day went sideways, the items that I was working on got angry and decided they didn't want to play well with me. They exploded basically in my face through that I had traumatic amputations of my right middle ring and little finger. Big chunk of my index finger was blown out. All my brachial arteries and veins in my right arm were shredded. I got to enjoy a quite a lot of quality tourniquet time while everybody, for, for me, again, all I had to do there is lay there and bleed. Everybody else did all the, the heavy lifting to keep me alive, to get me back to an area where they could do the life-saving skills that they needed. So... I became a 49-year-old amputee. Life got a little bit different, a little bit challenging in that time. And so I went from living life at 110 miles an hour to a hard reset of zero. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. I had injuries all over my body, burns and frag and doing surgeries to get at least my one finger back so I could have a key grip and a pinch. And I learned that later on from you guys, not 
it's not like I knew that going into it. That was <laughs> my therapist telling me that that's what they wanted in my doc. <laughs> you know the lingo. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that was probably January of 17. And I started with my hand therapist and my physical therapist, the same person in April of 17. So at that time, my left hand, I had ruptured tendons on three of my fingers. I had first, second, and third degree burns on that hand. And I had, oh, you guys are going to have to help me, where the tendons drop so the front of the finger lag. So they had to pin those. The first order of business for me, primarily at that time, was independence. So working with my hand therapist and getting my left hand back. Because I say, you know, many people don't know, or they just assume like me, I thought it was like everything else. You pull the bandaid off and everything's good to go. I didn't realize or think that my hands being immobilized for that amount of time, just how bad everything locks up and <laughs> gets stiff and doesn't want to move. When that all came off and I just couldn't bend anything, it was one of those aha moments. Oh, this isn't quite going to be as easy as I thought. Working three times a week for a long time, got used to my left hand back and independence. And then we shifted over to working both hands and to get my right hand, my finger moving so I could get that pinch grip and that key grip and gain more independence. Because you don't really know until you lose your independence and your ability to care for yourself and to do you know all those things that you normally do. I mean, pick your nose, whatever you want to do that you just <laughs> don't think about. Suddenly you're beating yourself in the face with a club because your hands are all wrapped or you just can't do it. So that getting that independence back was huge. And part of that, again, was I think the point to what we're talking about this evening is prosthetics. Through not knowing until all this happened, I didn't realize that all your grip strength comes from the three fingers that I lost. I figured that I was going to be, uh, we call my claw Zoidberg for Futurama, Dr. Zoidberg. And I just assumed out of ignorance of anatomy that I was just going to be able to work this thing out and it would be like a crusher claw from a lobster and be able to do everything that I could before just with these two fingers. And well, that's not the case. What do we need? We need prosthetics prosthetics for everyday tasks, prosthetics to get me back into the gym and be able to work out, prosthetics to do my job. And then that's really where I started to talk to not only my doctor, my hand therapist, and other folks up at Walter Reed at the amputee center and things like that to figure out what my options were. At that time, we had been at war for 17 years and prosthetics. I had just watched them come a long way, not from a close distance, just friends and acquaintances that I had who had lost limbs and things. But I found out that partial hand, hand amputees weren't really the norm. So there was not at that time a whole lot out there for people like me with a partial hand amputation. At the time, it was like, it would have just been easier. I would have had many more options if I would have just lost the whole hand. Because nowadays, going car shopping for a standard automobile, you can't find it, but you can walk in the showroom and get an automatic all day long. And that's what I felt like when I was talking to all the prosthetists, whole hand or from the wrist down or from the elbow down, there was just so many options. There was no options actually for me at that time for a partial hand amputee. So what they were trying to do was to modify existing 
whole hand amputee models to my particular injury and trying to get the lengths right and the offset right to, for instance, one of the ones that I have is a carbon fiber overlay of my hand and it has the terminal end receptor from a body powered one in it. So I can get attachments in and out, but it's at an angle coming off my palm. They tried to mimic the angle of the fingers, but it's just not right. As we walked through this, you know, they were making me work out prosthetics and they were just huge because they were trying to compensate and make something that they had already built and adapted to what my needs were. And not for a lack of trying, it just wasn't available really at the time, really leaned into the myoelectric thing because I was like, oh shit, I got to have a Terminator hand. I got to have a robot (laughs) hand because that is going to be the end all be all. Again, ignorance. I had just seen the videos and made the assumptions that that this myoelectric hand being able to move movable fingers and have a grip and everything like that was going to be the panacea. We got one of a kind at the time. They put the power pack and everything was on the hand. So the power pack and battery were the size of, say, a ketchup packet or two ketchup packets. So most myoelectric whole hand, the power pack is on the forearm. So you have the forearm power pack, and then the wires and the bracket go up to the hand, which comes on. And mine was very unique in the fact that it was all on the hand. So nothing was going past my wrist to bind my wrist or restrict the motion there. They modified a whole hand myoelectric to make it because I only needed the three fingers. And because of that, it lost some of its functionalities. I couldn't move the fingers. Trust me, I've used this to my advantage. The only finger that I can use independently is the middle finger. (laughs) When I have all of them, they'll move in that collapsing motion like your hand would normally when the pinky will come in, the ring will come in, and then the middle will come in and I can curl my index. And Working with my therapist again, it took quite a while to not be crushing everything that I had in my hand because you didn't have that negative feedback or that negative reinforcement, I guess, to let you know that you were going past the point. So I can't tell you how many times I was apologizing to her for crushing a styrofoam cup of water all over her desk or things like that as we worked through using this prosthetic. Once again, as I look back and I found out it wasn't that end-all be-all. It had this piece of electronics. It wasn't unobtainium metal from Terminator that was indestructible. And it was $180,000. So when I would break it, no one was happy. It only could hold 25 pounds. And I've tested that. And that's true. <laughs> it couldn't be used in wet conditions. And then if I looked at it from my job point of view... It had Bluetooth and you could tunnel into it. So from a security perspective, it wasn't secure for my job. So I couldn't use it at my job. So it became another tool for a toolbox. It became a very great conversation piece and it does have its uses, but it wasn't what in my mind I had built up that I've got to have this robot hand for my lifestyle. It just didn't prove to be what I needed as a general tool. It's more of a specific tool that I'll pull out when I'm doing more tasks that need, I don't want to say delicacy, but need some dexterity or I'm going to hold something for a long time. I can curl it and it'll hold and stay and it'll last quite a while. 
it's a great conversation starter at a bar or when I'm giving a speech because it makes that robot jeet. So mm-hmm. it gets everybody's, uh, <laughs> everybody's like, what is that? <laughs> so I know you said you were injured in 2017 and then you had to do some rehab on your left hand. At what point in your recovery did you first start that discussion of prosthetics for your right hand? Where in that timeline was that? For me, it was as soon as I started therapy. So in April, I started to talk with my therapist and then with Walter Reed to see what my options were. My first goal was that independence because I had lost a lot of weight. I wasn't able to work out. So my first goal was to try to find something that I could use in the gym. Walter Reed built me several hooks and different pieces. And then I also got online and I was buying stuff off Amazon, powerlifting hooks and things like that for both hands, just to try again, to get some of that independence back and to figure things out. And probably April 17 through the fall of October 17 is when I went back to work. By then, I had a couple of the prototype workout prosthetics that were just carbon fiber with different kinds of hooks and cups that I could use. And then also that adapted partial hand with the terminal end adapter that I talked about earlier to, I could put rock climbing hooks and things in that to try to get some mobility and get back out there and do some things. But then the thing that I getting a little bit ahead of myself, but by that point, I had realized by the fall of 17, going into early 18, that I was not, I don't say one of a kind, but my injury was unique in the fact that it was a partial hand and there wasn't a whole lot out there. So I was going to have to not advocate, but be stubborn to get what worked for me. And that's when we really started working. Were your amputation sites healed? I know sometimes that holds things up. You said started in April. So that's fairly soon after your injury. Did you have any skin breakdown when you were trying to use the different prosthetics? That was my first question. (laughs) As far as with the myoelectric, what I had most, because we worked on desensitization because my fingers were taken off at the knuckle. So the knuckle is still there, but the fingers are gone. So it's very thin right there. Okay. So for our listeners, he had the amputation at the metacarpal heads. So you still have your heads of your metacarpals. And I would think they would be tender and sensitive, especially with pressure. I was just curious because that's pretty early but I was just curious if that interfered at all. It did a bit because I still have a lot of residual frag and metal throughout and in my hand, especially. So, and then I had a lot of nerve endings that were close to the surface and exposed. Blumbering answer to your question is yes, I had some pain and I had a lot of fatigue because as we were working on the muscle movements or the movements of the nubs that I had to do to engage the sensors in the myoelectric hand. I mean, it was very tiring, to be honest. And we worked for hours and hours and we would take breaks and she would massage my nubs. It was a process, but I was very stubborn, I guess. Determined. 
yeah, I wanted to get back again out of ignorance and watching too many movies. I assumed that I was going to be a hundred percent or, you know, maybe I was hoping for that Deadpool effect where I was going to wake up one day and they'd be back, but <laughs> that didn't happen. So we worked at it for quite a while, but the desensitization, she, I worked on that when I was at homework. Mm-hmm. You guys give us homework. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. I probably overdid it at times, but I went crazy on the independence thing. And I just can't relate to anybody who hasn't lost their independence. It felt better for me to get back behind the wheel of my truck and actually drive myself to Lowe's and just walk around than it did the day I got my driver's license. That feeling of being able to wipe my own ass, for example, Mm -hmm. I couldn't do that for months. And so just being able to do that, I texted my therapist, you know, I was like, hey, I wiped myself today. (laughs) The things we get excited about. (laughs) Exactly. So not getting toilet paper breakthrough with a hook, that would be horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I pushed through the desensitization and the pain as a means to an end. But mostly I remember about it is just the fatigue of just not ever having to move my nubs like that before to trigger the things and then the dexterity it took because the more pressure, obviously, the faster it went. Not obviously. So how I controlled it was by moving my nubs and it touched the sensors, but I could speed it up or slow it down by the amount of pressure that I used, or I could change the mode. I could go into that middle finger driving mode with like a double bump of my nubs, having to try to learn to control that because when I was giving a brief or something like that, I didn't want to also go straight into the flip off mode because <laughs> <laughs> it can be funny in some situations, but you got to know the Your boss might not be too happy about that one. (laughs) Yeah, correct. I can only say sorry so many times before they don't believe that it's an accident. (laughs) They catch on. Exactly. (laughs) Oops, sorry. (laughs) I caught my driving hand. So it was intriguing that you said you were able to rock climb. Yeah. Through a veterans organization, I was able to go out in, this was August of 17. So not too long after I was invited to go out to Winter Park as part of this organization's outing for the summer. And part of it was rock climbing. And they had professional rock climbers there as guides and things like that. But my index finger on my left hand was pinned because of the lag drop or whatever it's called and bandaged and then Zoidberg over on this side. And But I just threw that thing on and hoped for the best. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am. And then finding... I don't want to say the weaknesses, but the challenges of because of it was made for a whole hand amputee and they modified it for me, the angle was wrong. And that's how I found out that it wasn't the best angle for what I needed because I found myself, you know, because I couldn't unhinge it. So I just found myself, you know, hanging like a fish on a hook. So it's like, well, what am I going to do now? And then just how it strapped to my wrist, it wasn't the same as it would have been as on a whole hand amputee. So they had to modify that. So there's a lot of pinch points, but still, I was so grateful to be out there. I was so grateful to be able to do it that that was stuff that I could live with and just maybe talk to folks later and modify and see what could be done to it, to adjust it. But with that hand specifically, like I said, they gave me even just things that I don't even do with that hand for archery. And again, it was for a whole hand. So for doing push-ups, there was a puck that you would put on it, but I don't know why they gave it to me because I still had hands to do that, but I think it just came as a package. 
So now compared to that was in 17, what's the difference in your prosthesis today versus from then? I wouldn't think it has stayed the same because there's been a lot of technology over the past couple of years, but how has that changed? I think it's more we changed with my mindset and just being exposed to everything. And as I said, it's become a toolbox for me. So I have the myoelectric. I have another hand, one that's a whole hand. It's missing the index and the thumb. And I put it on and the fingers, they ratchet into position so I can pull them and then put them back into their detent and put them in whatever position I want. And it's very strong. It's only at the what you call them, the metacarpals. Mm-hmm. It's only at that joint. So I can't bend them fully. It's just the fingers, but it's very strong. And I don't have to worry about breaking it or anything like that. If I do break it, it's just replacing the pegs and stuff on it. So I find that one very useful. And then the old standby, the body powered one, the old hook that goes around your shoulder that has been around for ages. I thought, I don't, I don't want that crap. And to be honest, once you figure out how to use that, I've tied flies with it for fishing. I've done such delicate work with that once you figure out how to use it and manipulate it. And they've given me so many terminal ends for that thing. I have tire mechanics toolkit for it. I have saws. I have cooking spatulas. I have chef knives. I have so many things for that body-powered one that it's an amazing Halloween costume as well. (laughs) I can always crush the pirate (laughs) because I have the metal hook. I have plastic hooks. I've transitioned mainly to that one for because I can't break it. It can hold as much as I can. I can carry more grocery bags in that thing than I can in my other hand. I have that dexterity that I'm using my shoulders my arms so my nubs don't get tired and my hand doesn't get tired so I can use a lot more of my body to use it. Strangely enough, maybe going back in technology, but I have, as I've progressed through this, I found that one to be the biggest tool in my toolbox because if I'm wrenching on a lawnmower or an engine, I can just lean back on that thing and not worry about breaking it because it's going to hold. Whereas some of these other more delicate ones, or I do have to worry about that. And I do have to keep that in mind. And there is a tax to be had when I break something and a wait time as well. And what you're, I don't want to say complaints because it's not a complaint, but what you're describing is very common among the patients that I've had that have had partial hands. It doesn't hold up. And most of the patients I've had have been men. So they are doing heavy use of your hand and it just doesn't keep up with what you need it to do. They're amazing pieces of equipment, whoever developed them, because the fine motor is just unreal sometimes in some of them, but they break easy. And if you're somebody who maybe types during the day and anybody who does any kind of labor or physical work, it's difficult for it to keep up. So that's no different than anybody that I've had as well. You all would know more than me, but I believe, at least from what I've read, that they're moving towards saving more of the hands where they used to, okay, well, we're going to take the hand because it's easier, blah, blah, blah. I think now they're seeing more partial hand amputees 
supply and demand may move it into a direction that is better. I still go, what it's been 17, so six years this January, I still go twice a week to therapy. That'll probably be for life just to maintain scar tissue and everything like that. She goes in with that damn metal (laughs) scraper. (laughs) God bless her. She's like, oh, I'm sorry, Greg. I was like, no, you're not. (laughs) I know you got to say that. I know we're we're friends because we've been doing this long enough, but come on. You're not blowing smoke up my skirt anymore. When you break out those tools. (laughs) Yeah. And some patient gave her a set, and I forget, but it had one on this thing and oh my God, it hurts so bad. And I came in one day and she's like, oh, you're going to be sad. Somebody dropped it and it broke. And I was like, oh, boo. (laughs) That's too bad. (laughs) And I'm not getting you another one. (laughs) Thinking back from the beginning when you were working with a prosthetic for your right hand, What was the hardest part? What was the time that you just were like, I don't know about this? Or did you even have a point? Or were you just so determined to use a prosthetic hand, a partial hand or a myoelectric or whatever component that you had, were you just so determined to use it that you were going to power through? Or was there a point that you thought, man, am I ever going to get this? Yes. There was a couple points, especially with the myoelectric, where for me, I had put so much I don't want to say hope because that would be wrong, but I had put so many eggs in the basket that when I got that robot hand, I was back. There was nothing that I couldn't do. And so the realization of its limitations and that it wasn't all that I thought it was going to be, and it's not its fault. I set myself up for that. And I remember I had been driving and I hadn't been using it really because The prosthetist was still concerned about my control of it, having it maybe on the steering wheel and it going... Take over. (laughs) Take over or me not being able to let go when I needed to or things like that. So I wasn't using it when I was driving. And I think I'd probably just come from a frustrating cup crushing session with my therapist. And I had left it on. And when I was driving back to work... That built up with the realization that it wasn't going to be all I hoped it was going to be. My nubs were just tired and hurting. And when I was driving, I had been driving, not much, but more than enough to gotten used to not having anything there on my hand, that spatial awareness. And so as I was driving and I had it on my hand... I was turning and it was whacking the turning signal. It was turning on the windshield wipers, just getting in the way of everything. And I just was like, F it. I just ripped it off and I threw it on the floor on the passenger side. That was a moment that I probably could have not picked that thing up and not looked back. Then I talked to you, know, my therapist and she's like, hey, you know, just bring it in. We'll get back on the horse. But that's the moment when I came to that realization that I'm going to have to have that toolbox. There's not going to be any one thing in my life now that I can say, okay, from when I wake up and from when I go to bed, no matter what I'm doing, it's going to be like I had my old hand back. And once I accepted that, it was much better. My mindset was much better. Hey, let's work through this. Let's find what we can use. If I've got to carry 18 tools, okay, I got to carry 18 tools. Me finally being forced to realize that was that tipping point. 
And, and then having the support system to say, hey, let's give it another chance. Let's work with it. We can get you to a point where you're not crushing wine glasses and things like that and <laughs> making a mess of everything. So it was that collection of events and things that got me through that time. But yeah, to answer your question, there was that point. The myelectric was going to be in the trophy case and not used again, but I'm glad I did it. And it has its place in my toolbox. It has its uses, but it definitely has its limitations, just like everything. Like my old hand did. It had limitations. The myoelectric doesn't feel pain. So it's got one thing over on everybody else's <laughs> fingers. So nanny, nanny, nanny. <laughs> it didn't feel that pain when you threw it across the floorboard. <laughs> no, it didn't. And I had the power off, so it didn't even go on me. Oh, even better. <laughs> if I would have the power on, it probably would have flipped me off. <laughs> <laughs> it would have worked against you in that way. <laughs> It was interesting. And one thing that I would never have thought of with the Bluetooth capacity and that not being something that you could use at work, I would never have thought of that. Yes. When I work in classified spaces, you're not allowed to have Bluetooth devices. And with that specifically, there's no way to shut it off. That's how I changed the settings with an Android-based one, but there's no way to shut it off. Of course, it would be funny to have it sitting out there with everybody else's phones there's my hand sitting there. So that would raise some questions. And working around questions that I had that the manufacturer couldn't answer. When you work with explosives, explosives that are electrically initiated. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. Susceptible to electromagnetic static and things like that. Did that hand produce any of that when it moved? And really nobody could answer that. So it was regulated to office work and things like that and classified environments. Mm -hmm. And you weren't testing that out to see if that would initiate. <laughs> right? <laughs> you weren't signing up for those studies. Nah, once is enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sit quietly in a big cotton ball every Friday the 13th. So <laughs> I'm not suspicious or anything. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Most of our listeners are hand therapists. What would your advice be to our listeners, to our fellow hand therapists that are working with patients who have sustained these injuries? And I know several of us do work with patients who have sustained amputations. And what would your one piece of advice that you could give to someone when they are starting to work? Maybe they haven't before worked with somebody who has an amputation from the patient perspective, what would your advice be to someone who is beginning to work with someone who has sustained an amputation? For me, I appreciated the fact that there was no BS. My therapist never gave me a false sense of what could happen. And I appreciated the fact that it was honest. We can get you here. We may get you here. We're going to try to get you here because of what I did and because of the amount of deployments and everything I had and all the friends that I had get blown up and injured. I always knew it was a possibility. I think from my perspective, it's skewed because when I got blown up, this goes back just to a little bit. Unfortunately, I was not knocked out. It wasn't a, I woke up in the hospital and someone had to tell me. It wasn't a surprise. So my mind was already really working it. And I feel anyway that many folks, whether they lose a finger in an accident or whether it's in their tool shop or gets popped off or they're playing with firecrackers or something like that, 
it's more of a surprise. So they're dealing with that shock as well, where I didn't. And thing that I always found great and amazing about the therapist, and I guess this would be my recommendation, is knowing your audience. I've sat with, I can't tell you how many students have come through (laughs) while I'm there and seen that whole, okay, we're going from A to Z and there's no, A didn't work. So I think P or M would work and bouncing around to find what is going to work for the individual patient instead of that one size fits all. For me, I think that's probably as I watch from the patient's perspective and I can honestly and brutally say that I have been the longest patient there. (laughs) I think there's only two original employees left or three at that (laughs) clinic since I started. So I've seen PTs, I've seen OTs, I've seen PT assistants, and I've done the dry needling, I've done the whole gamut. And the one thing that I would say, the ones that I assess from my limited perspective, again, just from what I've seen at the one clinic since I've been there, is the best ones are the ones who are able to adapt not only to the patient's physical needs, but the state of mind that they're in when they're coming there. Because in my mind, it's both. You guys know better than I do. I sit across from her in an intimate space, if you will. She's working on my hands and knowing that, having that emotional awareness to just see that I've seen some of these people struggle. And it's been very nice for me to see the successful ones, again, in my opinion, are able to not only give them physical relief, but also mental and emotional. That would be what I would throw out there. And I've seen some ones who've been very clinical, if you will. And to me, I've honestly seen the patients who are more a little sensitive ask for different therapists. I'm there for an hour, two or three times a week. That's a lot of time. And if we didn't get along, if we didn't develop a rapport, it'd be a long (laughs) hour while she's kicking my ass. I at least want to have some laughs and stuff while she's bending my finger around and stuffing it up my ear. (laughs) Digging that tool in your hand. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) With a big smile on her face. (laughs) Well, I can't see it because my head is down and my knees are (laughs) popping. I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but to me, that's what I've seen and experienced to be the most important thing, that dual or try approach of the physical, the mental, and the emotional seems to be for most the best of what I've seen. I think we covered everything. We really appreciate you joining us this evening and thanks so much for your time and your service. We really appreciate it. Yes. And I think our listeners will really enjoy this episode, honestly. I hope so. I appreciate the opportunity. It actually allowed me to talk through some stuff that, I mean, not mentally, but the timeline and everything like that and revisit some of the successes and working through some of the challenges. So I appreciate that as well. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. We appreciate you sharing this with us. And again, as Stephanie said, thank you for your service as well. Well, Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for what you guys do. I mean, I wouldn't be here today without my therapist. I couldn't be doing this if I didn't. (laughs) And for those of you listening, I did the jazz hands. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. You guys have a great night. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.